Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes and my guest today is Amanda Coe, the author of three novels, What They Do in the Dark, Getting Colder and Everything You Do is Wrong. Amanda is also an acclaimed scriptwriter. In 2013, she won a BAFTA for the BBC4 adaptation of John Brain's Room at the Top, while her other credits include Life in Squares, As If, the BBC1 adaptation of Apple Tree Yard, and most recently, just this past Christmas, the BBC FX adaptation of Rumor Godden's Black Narcissus. It also makes sense then that she's written the excellent introduction to the most recent Virago Modern Classics edition of uh, Rumor Godden's famous novel. Welcome to our shelves, Amanda. It's a real pleasure to have you here on the show today. Pleasure to be here. Um, I'm sure many of our listeners will have been watching Black Narcissus over Christmas as it was one of the uh, TV highlights of the festive period. Um, and I think I'd like to begin the uh, the uh, podcast today by asking you a little bit about your adaptation work, if that's OK. I'd love to know how you go about picking a project. Are you looking for particular things that you know from experience translate well onto the screen? Um, and do you think yourself as creating something entirely new in the process or are you always trying to stay as faithful as possible to the original text? It's a few questions to get you started. Well, in terms of choosing the material, I think there are certain things that, practically speaking, that you do look for, um, like a very vivid world that you know visually is going to kind of land or a particularly dramatic kind of situation with characters that you know will have dramatic legs um, and then beyond that it's it's just a matter of taste and quite often it's a matter of sort of seeing scenes that you know you're going to particularly enjoy um, realizing and space to do that so it's not like you're doing a transcript of, of a piece of material that, you, you know, you have room to bring something of yourself to. Um, but I do feel a sense of responsibility to render adaptations, to, to render the original texts in some ways. Um, th th there are obviously lots of different ways of handling what's known rather brutally as IP, intellectual property. And um, there's a whole realm of IP which which kind of exists, it seems, as a kind of jumping off point for everyone to tear it up and just keep the names of the protagonists and um, reinvent the plot. And, um, and those haven't historically been the projects that I've taken on because part of the pleasure of adaptation to me is to try and render something about the quality of the original writing. Um, it's almost like 
I imagine the way an actor inhabits a, a role or a kind of historical character that you, you it, it's so that you can sort of improvise within the voice of the writer almost. Um, and that's something quite intangible to do with tone, which obviously then gets further translated by the production because you're just writing the screenplay. So there's a limit to how much control you have over that. Yeah, of course. And then there's another level of what the actors, what the director does with the material, what the all the sort of behind the scenes stuff that, that takes into account as well, right? Yeah, it's a, a huge and complicated process. But certainly in terms of writing the scripts, I find that part of the the pleasure of taking on adaptation work, definitely. And do you find that you're drawn to, um, I mean, something like Black Narcissus, for example, was that a book that was an all-time favourite of yours? Is it something that you read and you just thought, I know how to do this on screen, I know what will look good, and I'd love to sort of play around with the world and, and make it something new? Or do you find that you need to sometimes stay away from things that you are particularly I don't know if you've got a favorite a favorite book. Would you would you be wary of adapt, trying to adapt that? Um, that's a really good question. And um, with with Black Narcissus, I hadn't read the book before when I was approached about adapting it. I knew the film very well, and the film was a huge favorite of mine. And that slightly put me off, or more than slightly, that put me off to do it because it's like there's this masterpiece. Why would you do? A less good version of that but then when I read the book I absolutely adored it and I could see that there was room to bring it to a new audience really um, because obviously the film is problematic in all sorts of ways to a younger audience despite its massive merits um, and yes, that that the phrase you used about playing playing with the world of the you know it was like the opportunity to to play with and inhabit the world of the book because I just found it so it was such a pleasure to work on it. When you work on a really really good text, um, it becomes this kind of discourse with the original writer. You, you really get into the kind of decisions that they've made and your admiration for it, I think, just grows because um, I've never worked on anything that's really good as, a, as a, an originating text that I haven't loved all the more by the time I've got to the end of it. Um, How fascinating, the idea that you would then... You, you know, you, you'd like it, you see something in it to begin with, but you kind of grow to love it more as the process continues. Yeah, yeah. It's a little bit like, you know, you fancy it on the first date. There's that, that <laughs> and then, you know, there's a more abiding, profound relationship as the as the the months and, and in fact the years as it often is, um, go by and going through the endless rewrites. Um Yeah, of course. Well you need to be able to kind of stick with it for a really long time, I suppose, like any piece of writing. Yeah. So I think that is part of the initial decision is, is has this got legs? Is this going to continue to in, interest me as opposed to am I going to solve the problems of translating it to screen quite quickly and therefore feel that my input's quite limited in a way? It's a, not, mm -hmm. it's a kind of dance that you do. And how different um, do you, how different is the process of your own novel writing. Do you approach it from an entirely different point of view? Do you see it quite visually in your head beforehand? Is that a kind of, do you think that's something that you do um, naturally and therefore that makes you a good screenwriter? Or do you think you have to think differently about your novels versus your scripts? 
I think I do have a very different practice when I'm writing novels to screenwriting. Obviously, not all my screenwriting practice is adaptation either, I should say that. So but there's also that distinction within it. But um, th there is perhaps a residue of it that structurally I will come to things through scenes and um, obviously screenwriting makes you very um, aware of the economy of expression almost that you're trying to describe things as economically as possible because it's a working document and also you're describing action you're not describing anything internal you're trying to render the internal external you know show show don't tell um, writing novels I mean, one of the reasons that I enjoy writing novels so much is, is approaching a text through language and finding the form through the language. So for me, it's an opportunity to play with a language that is just redundant when you're screenwriting because it, you're delivering a blueprint and your only opportunity to really enjoy and play with language is in the dialogue, which I love writing dialogue, but you need to really pare the dialogue down as much as possible. So anything more kind of Baroque or poetic or I don't know, you, you, you're, you're denied that pleasure. So um, yeah, being able to turn to prose. I mean, not that I think my prose is particularly um, embroidered, but, but somehow making every word count <laughs> is really enjoyable. Oh, no. And I think, well, I mean, I'm a huge fan of your prose and have been for a long time. I think your novels are all wonderful. And they're so, um, they're so wonderful. I mean, the, you know, what we do in the dark is, I still get shivers down my spine about the end of that novel, thinking about it now, you know, I just, I, I can't sort of, I don't think I'll ever get over that. It's such a brilliant, um, scary, kind of horrible, brilliantly horrible uh, piece of work. Um, and and I think you're right. I'm trying to think. I think when I was reading your last novel, I was I was very taken by a lot of your um, your use of language in it. You have a particular kind of way of really, I don't know, bringing sort of scenes to life. I remember, I'm sure, like there, were, you have a sort of tendency to to write incredibly visceral descriptions. Didn't I think you had a description that was about a pub that was like drinking inside of a dog, if I remember correctly. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if you'll even remember, but these wonderful I images that sort of stayed in my mind. So. Yeah, and you can see that in a screenplay that would have no place. Before. Right. Yeah, and you have to do something insane, which immediately is just somebody saying a funny line. It's not kind of embodied within the text. Um, and then in terms of the form of writing novels, because um, screenwriting is primarily a formal process and practice you know you have to be incredibly rigorous about the form and it is I have to say true that the most successful screenplays do tend to fall within a, a very um, recognizable three-act structure and you do tend to think in acts and if you're writing for say commercial television you think in terms of part breaks and you think of hooks at the end of an episode and all these things all these kind of I suppose it's almost like a musical form. There are there's certain, you know, symphonic beats you have to hit. And obviously novels don't have to do that. I mean, 
a novel can be anything. It can be as long, you know, it's not a 60 minute episode or a, you know, six part series. I mean, it's, it, it finds its own form. Um, and that's not to say that I don't think novels don't have to be examined with quite a lot of rigor in terms of their form, but there's just, again, just much more free play about what they can be. Does it feel like that when you're writing a novel after you've been writing a script or working on a script for a long time, do you suddenly feel that there's a freedom um, allowed you? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. And then, of course, it's sort of end of week one and then you're suddenly banging your head on the desk thinking, I've only got myself to blame. You know, I, I, you know, it's, um, yeah. You have to jump back and forth between them, always on the level of thinking this is kind of exciting and new and different and then jump back to the other one, you know, and then you'll keep it fresh for both. Exactly. I mean, the trick as in much of life, I think. (laughs) Brilliant. Well, could you tell me about two books that are currently on your bedside table, please, Amanda? So two books that are currently on my bedside table are Luck and Booth by Jenny Fagan and Death in Her Hands by Atessa Moshfeg. Um, Luck and Booth, I hadn't read any of Jenny Fagan's work before. Um, and it's really made me want to go and uh, read. Is it Panopticon? Yes, I think that's the only one I've read so far. Panopticon. Yeah. But it was. I remember reading that at the time and being quite sort of taken aback by. It's in, it's an incredible book. Really sort of hits you around the around the head. I think in a in a good way. Right. So so yes, it's um, reading Luck and Booth has really given me the taste to, to go back and read that because. Um, I think it's terrific. It's so vivid and particular. And I mean, what you look for when you come to a writer who you haven't read before, it it feels totally itself, but it also feels that it really, for me, kind of fruitfully evokes or very enjoyably evokes a tradition that uh, I really enjoy. I mean, Angela Carter seems like an obvious influence. Um, The fact it's set in... Edinburgh and it has this unity of place that it's about this building and it, it goes through historical periods um yeah highly it's set in a it's set in a, an Edinburgh tenement a tenement building isn't it and different I haven't read it yet but I've been wanting to it's on my list and is it sort of different people living in different rooms and it's sort of at different weird and wonderful things at different times so, right yeah so, so the, I guess the form is the life of the building and then there's a, a, a another kind of story arc that reaches its kind of um, consummation the closer you get to the present but it's it's about accountability to the past as a lot of good stories are (laughs) and and it's very female centered and it's very humane and yeah yeah really good really I mean it I don't know I haven't particularly suffered during lockdown with the thing that a lot of people seem to have of of losing the um, capacity to read. But I've Mm. certainly noticed when things really hit the spot, just that lovely feeling of, um, you know, just being swept along and wanting to be in a book has felt all the more precious somehow. Oh, yes. I think I've been feeling very much the same, that when you can find something that will really take you out of your current moment and just kind of transport you to a different world, whether it's good, bad, you know, it doesn't really matter, but something that will just take you up, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, because it, it, I mean, it feels like, you know, that desperation to kind of have a different conversation with a different 
face and you know it's like oh good <laughs> he's a new best friend you know yeah yeah I, I hadn't thought of it like that but I wonder if that's also it that's got to be some sort of part of it that it is there's something else to kind of talk about or think about with even within your own mind right that you're in this other world rather than just the world of your own making the kind of strange dystopia that we seem to live in absolutely and and also I should say I I really love Edinburgh and it's somewhere that I've missed in the last year because I usually go every year and um so to be transported you know with the detail of the book to to Edinburgh which is um yes such a unique place and also it feels it's, it has so many literary layers and obviously the book plays with that as well um but in a very unprecious way I mean it's very led through character um which is I guess always my favorite kind of writing interesting interesting okay and how does death in her hands compare because that seems to me that I have read and it seems like a slightly different book a very different sort of angle yeah I was I was it was I was thinking about the two of them together and I, I was thinking it's interesting how they both are rooted in a sense of other right well you know so much writing is but the the writing that precedes them and um mm. death in her hands seems to me very much a book about other forms of writing and i think it does that incredibly proficiently but i found it harder to love than luck and booth I did feel myself kind of compelled by it. I, I, I really loved um, my year of rest and relaxation. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't quite feel that, that kind of enjoyment that I'd had in that. Um, it's funny, isn't it? I think a lot of people have felt like that with um, Death in Her Hands, that they came loving my Leo of rest and relaxation so much that they wanted to really love this and it didn't quite hit the mark in the same way. But I think if I, if I remember correctly, it was also written... I think Death in Hands was written before my year of rest and relaxation, but it's only being published now or oh, recently, wow. as it were. Yeah. Oh, well, that's really interesting, because I, I, I was wondering about, you know, where it stands for the writer in terms of having written what I thought was the preceding book. But it's interesting that actually this is the book before. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I I really like Moshfeg's handling of if you like likability this thing this curse mm -hmm. of likability that particularly follows female writers for you know like having likable characters and tonally you know tonally she's so dry and mean you know, yeah. <laughs> <at> the time. <laughs> but often it's about people you know the limitations of that tone and um and, and that world view and the main character in death in her hands you realize is hugely circumscribed by her own misanthropy um so it's not like she doesn't have a take on that um but i think she creates worlds that are quite uncomfortable to inhabit mm. because they do they don't let you off the hook i mean you do encounter prejudices that you might share or um sort of yeah I, I I think she's always an interesting writer for sure 
I, I found I, one thing. I don't know if you found this, Lucy, reading it. I, I was, I was continuing thinking I was going to be a bit bored, and then it would, <laughs> it would slightly then shift a gear or bring something yeah. in. And I, she, she's good. She knows. She knows kind of how to how to keep those balls in the air, really. Oh no, completely. And I think that was. Um, I think uh, that's why, in a way, I. I certainly was not as um, I, I know a lot of critics were kind of quite unimpressed by it or, or they really had, had problems with it. But I think that it was actually very cleverly done. I think there was a lot of very clever sort of working beneath the surface, as you say, to keep the interest, to keep you just on the edge of thinking what's going to happen, what isn't going to happen. Um, and actually, it wasn't half in a way, you know, for a novel in which not an awful lot happens, you know, plot wise, if we're thinking about it. But there's an awful lot that kind of takes you along the way and really drags you along in the process. And I found that when I, I reread it on a couple of occasions, and every time I reread it, I got something a little bit more out of it, or there were little things I wanted to kind of follow you know so I have nothing but I think I think she's a really brilliant writer whatever she does really brilliant and 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 it, it is a fully achieved book I mean there's no mm -hmm. doubt that formally it completes itself it, it's not like um an experiment you know an abandoned experiment kind of thing it's it's um it it, it achieves what it sets out to do I feel very fully I think you're right um that there are these little depth charges that go off all mm. there's a yeah there's a real yeah that's exactly the right way of putting it that's perfect those little depth charges that it sort of you'd see the see the sort of you know the surface flutters with them you're not quite sure what's going on but they are there and they are kind of pushing you forward all the way so yeah it's a great book i think um hopefully if anyone hasn't picked it up already yet they'll uh, know to do so um and next up amanda i want to ask you about a i think you're going to tell us about a recent tv series that you've been watching is that right yes um pen one five which is um an american comedy really i mean it's it's a sitcom format it's a half hour sitcom um which is currently in the uk on now tv it's um made through hulu in america and its premise is that it's about two girls who were in um, american middle school so they're they're 13 and um then they are played by the series creators who are in their early 30s um so they're playing themselves at the age of 13 um in in an okay. otherwise completely um accurately realized world of um them in 1999 2000 or thereabouts um so all the other kids are the appropriately age it sounds very bizarre but it, it you you get over that very it it does something really interesting which is it it foregrounds the artificiality of its own form obviously because you're aware that you're watching performances but they are brilliant, brilliant performers, and um, and they write it as well, along with the co-creator of the series, who's a guy mm. who directs a lot of the episodes. Um, and it's wonderful. I mean, it's not just funny. I mean, it is. I mean, it's all the way through. It is really, really funny. But it is incredibly moving. <laughs> I find it almost unbearably poignant to watch because. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I, I think it's just one of the best things I've seen in years um, because it is, I mean, we're all familiar with the, these American, well, particularly American school worlds. Mm. 
that always kind of assume a, a universality of experience, which is, you know, there's the cool kids and the sporty kids and the, you know, and then quite often the people who are making these pieces, it's about them being the outsider kids who are the nerds, and which the two main characters absolutely are. And it's, but, but what, it's an incredibly compassionate show so everybody in it is given their point of view and the message it really conveys is you know what we're all pretty kind of out of it when we're 13 it's a time of absolute chaos and despair and and strong emotion and I've never seen that rendered so perfectly and with as I say with such compassion and such detail I mean the detail of it um is incredibly admirable that they can they can base an episode around like there's one episode is about the the two girls love playing sylvanian families together and and and, and it's sort of one episode is about the watershed when they stop doing that you know one isn't ready for it and and one is because they're growing up and um I've been watching it with my teenage daughter who who also really really loves it. Obviously she's much closer to the to to its world, but she too just thinks it's great. And it's partly about rendering female experience in a way you just think, "Oh my god, <laughs> you know, I just haven't seen this stuff." Well, I was going to say because I haven't seen it myself yet, but you're making me definitely want to watch it. But is it in that sort of vein of um I don't know comedy about female friendship something like uh, you know like broad city is I'm just thinking of a comparison or something slightly different yeah it's not um I'm only slightly familiar with broad city my daughter really really loves it that's her absolute favorite show she says it's uh, just totally changed her kind of world view really oh wow okay um but it's much more gentle than something like that and much less okay. rendered into sitcom so as I say it's sitcom form because it's half hours and it and there are you know it's structured in some ways like a sitcom but it's like each is like a little piece of performance art or I don't know it's just um I love the way these shows can can break through that that are just them backing the talent because they are very talented and saying okay make the thing that's the most thing you want to make you know it's um mm. and 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 feeling like it finds its audience because i it it was my niece who's 30 who really recommend who, who's around the age of the women who are making it so for her it has all the um kind of cultural sort of um reference points which feel absolutely right to her um but it's interesting that like my daughter is much younger and I'm much older and yet we all feel the kind of universality within it Yes, there's clearly some sort of um, yeah universal truth there that speaks to you whatever whether you can um, reference it on a kind of very personal level or not I'm gonna okay I'm gonna definitely start watching that it you sounds brilliant it, you won't regret it and again this this thing that although as I say it's very compassionate it doesn't it doesn't really the performances definitely don't try to make themselves lovable so in the way that you can be incredibly obnoxious at that age and really cruel you know to even your dearest friends as well as loving and adorable and all the things it, it really has that range um which is great it's so funny isn't it I feel like but the idea that we still have to see um women particularly whether it's on screen or in their writing like experimenting with unlikable characters or unlikability is still quite a revolutionary thing in this day and age is it's sort of I don't know 
something slightly depressing about that, but also it's lovely when you see these depictions. Yeah, it just uh, yeah that thing of just expanding <laughs> the permissibility of um, yeah representations, I guess. Yeah, brilliant. Our shells will be back in just a moment. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lisey Scholes and I'm talking to Amanda Coe about uh, women writing unlikable characters. Uh, but next up, I'm going to ask Amanda um, to tell me about a book that has made her think about feminism in a new way. I think you have a couple of books that you like to talk about, Amanda, so go for it. Yes, well, the, the book that made me think about feminism in a different way when I was asked this question there was one book that immediately sprang to mind which is The Golden Notebook by Doris Lessing which I read in my 20s and um it's a big book it's a big <laughs> book <laughs> and um it yeah, I'd never read anything quite, well, there is no book quite like The Golden Notebook. I mean, you feel like you slightly, you know, live through it, I think, um, partly because it is such a big old book, you know, mm -hmm. and, and and it has its repetitious aspects. And um, it its conceit of this, the main character, Anna Wolf, who, who must contain her experience of being a woman in these different notebooks, and that is the only way that she can represent her reality. I, I found really compelling, and not just because I'm a stationary freak. Um, <laughs> I mean, I like, you know, notebooks. It's like I like nothing better than a notebook. Well, I've uh, never heard anyone talk about that in relation to the Golden Notebook before, but it makes perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> notebook, you got me. Got me at <laughs> um, 
but it's so memorably rendered the 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 singular experience of that character who's obviously you know quite linked to Doris Lessing herself um and so so there are the different notebooks and I think it's the blue notebook which is the notebook that Anna uses to um record all the things from her daily life that she feels aren't don't merit entrance into um the yellow notebook which is her her art notebook or the black notebook which is her work notebook or um and there's this very memorable <clears throat> passage which is she just sets out to record her day and what's happening in her day and she's um a single mother of a young daughter and so the day starts with her being woken by her daughter waking, but she's also got her lover staying. Um, one of the endless parade of unsatisfactory lovers that are in the Golden Notebook, which is a whole other thing that kind of, um, I remember looming large when I read that. But um, so, so she has sex with her lover and then she makes breakfast for her daughter and then she's got her period. And I'd never read a novel where, a character gets her period and it just kind of obtrudes through the day that she has to because it's written in the 1950s so she's wearing these kind of unwieldy sanitary towels and she has to go and change her sanitary towel and um you know and 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 the physical descriptions of how her period's making her feel and then she um has her working day which it's very difficult and then she is also running back she's buying food and making dinner for her lover who then because he's married obviously um obviously. you know doesn't, doesn't turn up and and she burns the food but then she ends up eating this rather disgusting burnt dinner and um I mean, you know, it really stayed with me. And although obviously I was, I think I was in my mid twenties when I'd read it and I'd, you know, I'd read quite a lot of feminist theory and I did an English degree and I'd read a lot of women writers, but there was something about the juxtaposition of that, the, the, the just the honesty of that rendering of, I mean, living in a female body, you know, at the, at the time just, felt really radical and but that it wasn't just that it was also going to talk about being this character in the context of the political spectrum of the world then and there's a very um you know it, it's a there's a very pertinent strain in the book which is about the disillusion about communism about being a communist and then learning about the stalinist outrages and the british communist party coming to terms with that you know it, it's an incredibly complex nuanced book um and it i guess it just seemed to open up a world in which it was kind of possible to be um yeah many many different kinds of woman i guess um, and, and also, I mean, you know, the fact that it was written in the 50s, I mean, it, it, it felt very much and feels very much now like a period piece. It's written in a particular moment of history, but um, it's kind of, kind of, yeah, so expansive. 
I'm so interested in the Golden Notebook because um, I just there are so many people I think of uh, old, like maybe my generation, slightly older as well, who it seemed to have such a big impact on their lives. Whereas I don't know, and I'm not I'm not for sure, but I don't know many younger women who seem to read it in the same way today. Perhaps because it, there is an element, you know, it is dated, like you say, in certain ways, obviously. Um, but I, I just, I mean, I, you know, before the pandemic, I used to run a monthly book group at one of the Waterstones here in London, and we did, um, it was chose feminist texts, and one of them was the Golden Notebook. I did it one month, and about two people turned up for the book group, and nobody had finished it. <laughs> nobody had finished reading it. Nobody liked it, and I was sort of really taken aback by this. You know, these were people who normally turned up every week, ready to discuss, you know, the mo- like uh, you know, a whole host of fascinating books, and people just didn't like it. And I was really surprised by that. It's quite. I mean, it, it's quite a down book, isn't it? Because it is about it's, it's about a breakdown, basically. Yeah. Anna's yeah. Down. I mean, ultimately, the form of the book is the achievement out of breakdown. It's saying, you know, you can. This can be your life, however fragmented. There is there is a hole to it that um, it's it's yeah. I can understand people not wanting <laughs> to spend. <laughs> The amount of time you have to spend in it is a bit like you have the breakdown too. Um, yeah, maybe that's it. It's just too much for some people to kind of get their heads around. Yeah, and again, I think it doesn't... I guess this this leads on to the other book that I thought about um, when when the question was asked about a book that had influenced my view of feminism because the other book I thought about was Heartburn, the Nora Ephron book, which, of course, is very different from the Golden Notebook. But it's also sort of about a breakdown as well. So there's like That's not true. different as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I suppose it's like the missing notebook in the Golden Notebook because it's the one with the jokes in. I mean, yes. The- the Golden Notebook is the very different definition of what my kids call not much jokes. I mean, it, you know, and even within the book, uh, Saul, one of the characters, um, says to Anna, you know, middle-aged, what is it kind of, what is it with middle-aged women? They they never seem to laugh. <laughs> and, um, um, yeah, and, and, and so... Heartburn, of course, is this exercise, as you say, it's, it, it treats a breakdown and makes of it this kind of comic text. But um, I have to say, I reread it quite recently, when I say quite recently, within the last two years, I read it on holiday um, a couple of years ago, and I found it almost sort of painful as a read because I felt such a disparity between the material and the tone. And and one of the things that really struck me about Heartburn is, you know, because it's a, an autobiographical text about Nora Ephron's experience of her husband having this affair. And she had, I think they had a baby at the time and then she she becomes pregnant again. Or am I getting that mixed up? No, no, I think you're right. They think they That's did. Pregnant. She's definitely pregnant in it. And I think yeah. they did have a kid, didn't they? Yeah. And and that really, really struck me because it's not really disgusting. I mean, they live in this world where everyone's just getting on planes and flying to Washington and going for dinner in glammy restaurants. And it's all very like, you know, hey. Yeah, there's like a commuter plane, isn't there, from New York to Washington. Yeah. The, they're on it the whole time. Like they just get a train or something. It's mad. Yeah, yeah. That, that's of another age. But I suppose what really struck me was 
here is a woman who is deep in the infancy of her children. You know, she's got they've got a toddler and she becomes pregnant and it's just not talked about because the book, the project of the book, it seems to me, is to kind of be the cool girl, you know, like in the gone girl sense. It's like whatever's going to happen, I, I'm going to I'm not really going to go right in and prod the pain that all this is and the chaos. I'm just going to sort of find this tone that turns it into a lot of joke. I mean, a lot of good jokes, you know, and people rightly love it. But there, there was something I, I feel about it that's quite kind of meretricious in a way. Is that the right word? I'm probably being a bit harsh on it. But, yeah, some, somewhere between Doris, you know, getting us into the wadding of her sanitary towel and making us... <laughs> making us wear it for 600 pages and then <laughs> Nora Ephron kind of on her chuckling her way through yeah, <laughs> Marlborough and 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 frankly like you know there's a whole thing where that they the kids just looked after by the help you know that's a whole layer of the book that's you know tucked away I don't know I kind of felt well that's interesting isn't it it's kind of yeah, we need, you know, it, it, it's important to, I'm attracted to comic texts, um, but I'm, I'm very interested as to how you can, you know, have the laughs, but also have the reality. I don't know. Or not deny the pain and the difficulty. Um, yeah, I wonder, it's so, it, it's so sort of hard to tell, isn't it? Because sometimes I think when, and I haven't read Heartburn for a while as well, I must admit, but I suppose my impression of it was of somebody who was using the using comedy to deflect in a certain way like as in that's the way to to try and process this bit of information right is to turn it into this kind of comic story that you can then tell and it, it sort of bundles it up in a particular manner and that sort of made sense at the time and it seems in the same way that you know the, the notebook is dated I suppose a lot of the um, sort of absence of the kids and stuff in it I think I just thought that that was a very because it is written in the 70s isn't it am I right yeah so it feels like a sort of very almost like a very 70s thing you know that idea that you know people in the 70s took their kids to parties and just left them upstairs sleeping <laughs> while they were getting drunk downstairs you know that sort of yeah. you know like a different world and a different way of trying to deal with or trying to be you know yet yeah, a mother and a wife there's obviously kind of complications there going on though definitely and and I think the nature of the humor which I, I didn't feel you know with Nora Ephron's later work but but I think I suppose what I'm skirting around is, is the, the the joke that she's trying to tell the the audience that she has in mind is a male audience you know it, it's about kind of making light of her difficulties in order to be entertaining Mm. And um, and maybe somebody who was writing about that experience now would still find the humour, but would not quite be so concerned to 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 be a laugh in that right way. Um, yeah, no, I hadn't thought of it like that. But yes, it's a sort of saying of like, even though all this terrible thing, these terrible things are happening, but I'm still, you know, keeping going and keeping kind of, you know, I'm charming and I can still make these wonderful, there are recipes in it, aren't there? She makes various things throughout it and she's still sort of keeping going. And and actually today I feel like you'd get the, 
today you get the well you get this sort of Elena Franti what's the the days of abandonment or something oh which God. is very different <laughs> oh um that's an extraordinary book that that is another book that you I slightly feel like I lived that I mean not not that I've had that but you know but it's so no, but reading it yes oh my lord yeah she really yeah. goes there doesn't she she certainly um, does yeah different ways of explaining these are sort of breakdowns and, and terrible things happening. Um, and finally, Amanda, can I ask you to name a woman or a non-binary person whom you admire um, and tell me who it would be and why? Um, a woman who I admire very much is the writer Muriel Spark. Um, <laughs> I'm always really happy when somebody, I think it's particularly, you know, for this podcast, when somebody chooses someone who's on the Virago Modern Classics list, it's always <laughs> a, such a, an extra joy, I think, an extra lovely no, joy. by Virago Modern <laughs> but, um, Well, I just truly love Muriel Spark. I love her writing. And I guess I, since I've known of her writing, I've loved it. And as the many years have gone by, I just love it more and more. But I suppose what I've grown to appreciate as well is what a remarkable woman she was to produce that body of work. Um, and, 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 and an awareness of that has kind of informed my pleasure in her writing as well. Um, Can you explain that a little bit for any of our listeners who aren't so familiar with her? So um, a few years ago, they had um, at the National Library of Scotland, they had a centenary exhibition of Muriel Sparks archive. <laughs> this sounds like the nerdiest thing ever. <laughs> um, as my birthday treat, I went up um, with my husband to go and see the exhibition because it wasn't travelling anywhere. And it wasn't a big exhibition, but it was really well curated. Um Oh, no, I'm very jealous because I didn't get to go and see it. So don't worry, you're talking it to another spark nerd. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit like um, I'd been to the David Bowie exhibition at the V&A a few years before. And I felt a bit like, like when I was in the exhibition, I was a bit like the way I'd seen the middle-aged men being in the David Bowie. <laughs> Although I'd loved it and I love David Bowie. I've got a postcard up that Lucy can see. Um it, it, it just, yeah, I just, I just felt very moved by it because Muriel Spark lived this, this very, she grew up in Edinburgh and she then lived a very peripatetic life um, dedicated to writing. She was a single parent when she was very young and then she didn't bring her son up. Um, he grew up with her parents um, and she lived for years in genuine poverty um sort of earning what she could doing various jobs and just always having this great conviction in her writing and her need to write and um i think one of the things i really love about her work is it's it's incredibly stylish mm. and and it has that surface appeal. And then you then realise that that style holds so much, so much insight into um, human personality and, and so much kind of pleasure, sort of a strange quality of almost spiteful pleasure mm -hmm. in... Um, 
in in human folly. Um, she had an interesting trajectory in that she she came from a Jewish family, a kind of secular Jewish family, and she didn't have a relationship to Judaism as a as an adult. I suppose you could almost argue that she disowned it in that she never owned it. And it's curiously absent from a lot of her work, her Jewish identity. She then became a Catholic in that, to me, slightly mystifying way that, um, you know, there's gray and green, there's Evelyn Moore, there's <laughs> Like It's like, I, I still don't know what to do with that. I kind of slightly bracket it when I'm reading her work. But... Um, there's there's a quality in reading her work that that you know thinking about her relationship to god that she she i mean all writers arguably are god aren't they but but there is something godlike in her purview that it's quite dispassionate mm. it's very clear sighted it it takes a lot of pleasure <laughs> it takes and it gives a lot of pleasure she's a very very pleasurable um writer to read so I suppose one of the things I really admire about her is this quality of vitality and enjoyment in life and seeing all these artifacts that she'd kept um, for example there was this dress that she'd bought when she uh, famously when she kind of broke through as a writer she won this sh short story competition run by the observer which in those days I think the prize money was like a crazy amount of money compared to what you would get nowadays and a crazy amount of profile in terms of, of writing so it really was a huge moment it it set her on her way and I, I think she was she's in her late 30s when this happened and had been grinding away for years as I say you know she really became ill because she she was living in the poverty line and one of the things she did was she bought herself this amazing dress this blue this midnight blue velvet dress which um comes up as a detail in I think loitering with intent which is one of her later autobiographical novels um and there there was this really gorgeous dress um and it just seemed very emblematic of her approach to life which was to have this very um lively intellectual life which she had to really be incredibly tenacious about in order to to realize but she also liked a really good dress <laughs> um you know, that the self-presentation was something she took pleasure in and the fact that she'd earned the money and that um, the way that she made her way in the world um, really hit home seeing, seeing the, going through this exhibition. And there was a really good letter because there was also at least one typewriter in this exhibition and, and there was a letter that they'd put in the typewriter and it was a letter that she'd written to Doris Lessing. <laughs> um, oh, okay. And they were very near contemporaries and um, Spark had uh, married in her late teens and gone out to what was then Rhodesia to uh, now Zimbabwe. Um, and and that was the time, that's where um, Doris Lessing grew up. And they, they would have been within miles of each other being of a similar age but they didn't know each other then they got to know each other later but there was this letter that Muriel Spark had written 
you know, they had some sort of correspondence and its tone was very affectionate and wry. And, and there was a phrase in it, which was because it was written, I think, in the 70s when they would have been in late middle age. And, and it was kind of like, oh, Doris, the lives we've had, you know, people knew the whole <laughs> of it. Um, I thought, yeah, God, you know, it was tough. It was really tough for both of them. And it was materially tough. And it was tough in terms of, it was really hard to be taken seriously mm. as, a, as a writer and a woman then. And they, they did it. They toughed it out and they prevailed and it took enormous strength of character. Yeah, that's wonderful. I think that's a wonderful place to end it with tough, tenacious women who were uh, kind of uh, forged ahead so people like you can follow them now, I suppose. Uh, but those wonderful stories about Muriel Spock, I'm sure I came across one once, but I think when she was, because she later in life she was... Um, much more successful, wasn't she? And made quite a bit of money out of her writing by the end of it. And I'm sure I came across a, I can't remember where it was now, but um, a story about her at some party wearing a lovely dress as well and saying to somebody sort of, oh, this little thing, this was just a short story I kind of passed off yesterday <laughs> morning, you know, it didn't take me that long. And I just, and, you know, that lovely, and it's that sort of slightly cruel, but very funny wit, you know, very sharp wit that you see in the novels as well. And also I think I hadn't, I, I knew a little bit about her life, but I wasn't quite so sure. I didn't know so much about her struggling sort of early on. So I love the idea of her in later years being very proud of what she's, you know, the money she's earned and the sort of success that she's had from her career. Absolutely. And and not and, and not being undervalued. You know, she was a tough cookie when it came to negotiating with publishers and agents. I mean, it, it, it was hard forged in her case. Um Although I have to say, I, I had a really nice thing a couple of years ago, having spoken about Edinburgh and my affection for it previously, of um, going to find the school she went to in Edinburgh, which is the school mm. that um, the school in Prime of Miss Jean Brodie is based on, Marcia Blaine. Um, it's actually called James Gillespie. Um, and the school now is in a different building, but I kind of, you know, through the miracle of Google, managed to track down where the old old school building is and one of the thrilling things is that it's on um it's on a road called Warren de Close and in loitering with intent the book that the main character is writing is called Warren de Chase it's like my Warren de Chase which is this kind of link motif of the thing that she holds precious so that was quite thrilling and then I got to this this Edwardian building which was being converted into flats and you know, trying to feel something, but not really. And, mm. and there was this teeny, teeny, tiny little plaque up. I mean, I cannot tell you how small it was. It was like the size of a satsuma, this little plaque <laughs> above one window. And, and it just said, Muriel Spark, writer. That's all it said. And, and then I think it was put up by like women of achievement or something. And it oh. seemed like such a Sparkian um, image. I, I just would imagine that she would have found that hilarious and, and yeah. really emblematic of, you know, everything really. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. The tiny little plaque. But yes, she was here at some point. Yeah. Wonderful. Oh, thank you so much, Amanda. That was a real pleasure. Thank you for coming on the show today. Oh, it's a, a pleasure for me as well. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for listening. Our Shells is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Amanda Coe, and tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism, and culture. Thank you.